0: Would you grab your Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 10 verses uh, 13 through 16. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, hear the word of God. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray together now. Father, we are a people who need your word. We're reminded of what the psalmist says in Psalm 29, speaking... Of your voice, he says, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and all in his temple cry, glory. No, Father, we come this morning looking to hear, waiting to hear your your voice. We rest not in the technology of man, but we look, we look to your voice. And Father, we, as we come before your word, we need this word in Mark chapter 10. We are so often like the disciples and we just don't get the gospel. And so we pray this morning that you would call forth true faith in our hearts We pray that you would show us just how needy we actually are. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus, His character as our sufficient and worthy Savior. Father, we pray work in our hearts this morning. We pray this in your Son's name, amen. The very thing you dread as a preacher is losing your voice, and so... I feel like I'm on one of my last strings, so we'll see how we go this morning, what the Lord gives. Uh, let's So let's look at Mark's gospel. So as we think about Mark's gospel, there is a, a theme working its way out throughout, and that's the theme of faith. And so as you go back to Mark chapter 1, and he's, and as you think about how Jesus began his ministry, it's no mistake that the first words that we... Here, come out of our Lord's mouth, are these. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what? Well, repent and believe in the gospel. And so we see faith, this this central command... And we find this command, which comes out of our Savior's mouth, find its way into every nook and cranny in the story that Mark tells us. Look here or there in the Gospel of Mark, and you're going to find the issue of faith. And so faith is supreme in the book of Mark, but the question is, well, what is faith? We're talking about it all the time, but we need to define it. And as we think about what the Bible teaches on faith very broadly, we can note just several components that should come to mind very quickly. First, faith involves our intellect. It involves knowledge. If we are to practice biblical faith, we must come to know something about the Lord Jesus Christ. We must know facts about Jesus. We must be accurately informed of our Lord's identity, that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. Even more, we must know something about what Jesus has done as the Christ, the Son of God. We must know something of His life. We must know something of the powerful deeds that He did throughout Galilee and the nation of Israel. We must know something of His death and His resurrection and His session and His coming. And second, faith is a matter that involves our knees and our tongues. That is to say, faith is a matter of allegiance. If we have come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is the rightful King over all created reality, faith is a recognition of this reality. Faith is something that compels us to to bend our knees to King Jesus and confess with our lips the oath that should be branded across the whole of our lives. Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, as Paul tells us in the book of Philippians. And this brings us to a third component of faith. If we have tasted of the goodness of Jesus, and we've come to re- we must come to realize that, that faith rises higher than just mere knowledge. If we have tasted of the sweetness of Jesus in the gospel, we have come to know that faith is more than just a, a bent knee in the use of our vocal cords. True biblical faith pierces the very inner workings of our hearts. Faith at its highest plateau is this this sweet work of entrustment to Jesus. It is giving oneself to another. It is this radical work of dependence. And when we turn our attention to Mark's gospel, this is the very component of faith that we find most often in the book. Woven into the narrative that, that Mark has given us, we find these compelling examples of faith, of radical dependence, of entrustment. We can remember that woman who came to Jesus, the, the crowd was busy and bustling, and she made her way through that busy crowd, and she grabbed hold of Jesus' garment, and she said what? Mark tells us this is what faith is tangibly. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well, or we can remember the woman who in desperation for her her daughter, pushed past the stigma of her unclean race. She was a Syrophoenician by birth. And what did she do? Well, she entrusted herself to the Savior. Mark gives us another tangible example of what faith is. She cries out before Jesus, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Or we remember the father's, whose son was enslaved to demonic power and he asked the disciples to heal his son and they can't. They lack faith. And the the son is being tortured day in and day out. And here in this story, Mark gives us another compelling example of what faith is. The, The father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. We have to understand that the reason that Mark has placed all of these stories before us is so that we would operate with the same character, with the same heart of faith as we see in these stories. While the many circumstances of these stories are extreme, there's a woman with an uncurable flow of blood demon possession all over the place. The very posture of heart found in these characters is to be the norm for those who follow after the Lord Jesus. What we see evidenced in these characters must take place in our own hearts if we are to have a share in Jesus and his glorious kingdom. Mark is preaching to us. These stories are not just to be merely marveled at, but they must be deployed for our own use. In fact, this is the very issue that comes to us in the text before us this morning. In this scene, Jesus comes to his disciples and he labors with them that they might learn this high order of faith, that they might learn the dependence of faith. And while these men have spent so much time with Jesus, we are so aware of their many failings. These men are are slow to believe the words that Jesus places before them, and they're dull in understanding. They just don't get it so often. And so Jesus, for the sake of their salvation, must live out the ancient prophecy recorded in Isaiah 42, verse 16, where Isaiah speaks of a coming day when the Lord will fix his people forever. Isaiah prophesies of Jesus' ministry saying this, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. If we have come to know anything about ourselves with any accuracy, we have the same need as the disciples. We need Jesus to perform this redemptive work in our own hearts. Just like the disciples, we are often so slow to believe the promises of the gospel. We are so dull in our understanding. And Jesus is going to work in our hearts this morning that we might be able to say with the characters that we have met in in the Mark's gospel this. If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's scraps. I believe, help my unbelief. So as we desire this, these very statements to come out of us this morning, as we desire this work of grace to be accomplished in us, we can divide up our text into, into three sections. As we look at our text this morning, we're first going to look at the, the condition of the disciples. Second, then we're going to hear the call of Jesus as he calls these men to faith. And then third, we're going to look at the character of Jesus revealed in this text. And so we can begin this morning by considering the condition of the disciples revealed here. And so in Mark chapter 10, we're picking up again the narrative of Jesus' journey. He's left Galilee and he is traveling down to Jerusalem. And we pick up this scene after his debate with the Pharisees about divorce and remarriage. and what we find is that Jesus, in some sense, is resuming the, the normal course of his ministry. Verse 13 records the scene. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And so what we find take place in verse 13 is something that has taken place throughout Jesus' whole ministry. The crowds gathered to receive Jesus' redemptive touch. And this is something that we've heard again and again in the narrative. Remembering back to the end of chapter 1, Mark tells us this great summary statement about Jesus' ministry. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. In fact, as we move throughout the narrative of Mark's gospel, the enthusiasm of the crowds grows and increases, so much so by the time we come to chapter 3, Jesus is concerned for his own life, and he says this to his disciples, make a boat ready because of the crowds. Mark goes on to say, for he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And we could go on quoting passages this morning, but there's a a general pattern that we can see in the Gospel of Mark. The crowds hear of Jesus' powerful ministry, and then they they gather up and they grab the sick and the demonized, and then they flock to Jesus. And then Jesus, full of compassion and mercy, heals and ministers to the crowd's needs. And this happens again and again and again now we're in Mark chapter 10, and something is strangely different in this scene. Again, the crowds hear of Jesus, and they bring their sick and needy children to Jesus. Perhaps the children are sick or demonized. We're not sure here. Mark doesn't tell us. But in this case, something startling happens. We read the end of verse 13, and the disciples rebuke them. Now the scene should startle us. We've been paying attention to Mark's gospel. Jesus has rebuked the wind and the waves. Jesus has rebuked unclean spirits. He has spoken harsh and authoritative words to these enemies that seek to hinder his mission and hurt his people. But here are Jesus' disciples. And who and what are they rebuking? Well, they're not rebuking unclean spirits. They're not rebuking the Pharisees. They're not rebuking nature. Rather, rebuking children. The very children that have come to Jesus to receive his redemptive ministry. And in a very real way, the disciples detect that these children are a threat to Jesus' mission as the Christ, the Son of God. And so clearly, we can see that something has gone terribly wrong in the disciples. And the question is, what is going on here? What is the condition of these men's hearts Perhaps we could venture at this point in the ministry. The disciples were, were simply burnt out. They've met with countless cases of suffering. They've been surrounded by and poked at by the crowds. Intrusions have become the norm and there's little peace for them. Just think, they had very little time to even eat a meal when the crowds came upon them. Surely, at a minimum, we could say that these men had become desensitized to the needs of the crowd, or at worst, they, become, they became completely burnt out. And so they say, looking at the crowds of, of children coming near Jesus, that's enough. The doors are closed. We're shutting down this ministry. Well, surely there's an element of, of burnout going on here. While we can sympathize with these men, we have to reckon that there's something else going on here under the surface. Ever since chapter 8, when Jesus divulged his messianic mission, when he told his disciples what he was going to do as the Christ, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and be raised, we've begun to begin to notice a certain obtuseness in the disciples. It's as if during this journey sequence to Jerusalem, to the cross, that Mark is peeling back the, the skin of the disciples so we can look directly into their souls and their hearts. And what do we find when we do this? Well, we find a group of men who are scandalized by the message of the gospel. Just think about this. After hearing the gospel for the first time where Jesus explains that he is going to die, he's going to suffer, Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes his master. And Jesus turns to his disciples a second time and he explains what he's going to do as the Christ, the Son of God, that he's going to suffer and die. And what does the group do? While they devote their energies to arguing about who is the greatest among them. Jesus again explains the character of his messianic mission. He says, if anyone would be first of all, he must be last of all and servant of all. And what do the disciples want to talk about? John says, Jesus, there's a man over there casting out demons in your name. We should stop him. And so with the children gathering around Jesus, the disciples decide that they must put this to a stop. They will not have a Christ if they can help it who associates and gives his time to children. They will not follow a king if they can help it who is surrounded by the unimportant and shrouded with weakness. We can get the pulse of their heart. Glory cannot be found here, King Jesus. Power cannot be grasped here. So at a very basic level, these men we begin to see into their hearts, they do not understand Jesus and what Jesus is all about. They've yet to understand that the one before them was written of in Isaiah 53. That their Jesus is a servant with no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. A servant despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A servant called to bear grief and carry sorrow. A servant who will both be pierced and crushed for the sins of others. A servant who will be cut off from the land of the living. A servant who will make intercession for the guilty. These men did not understand who Jesus was. But as we consider these men, and as Mark continues to peel back the layers of skin so we can look into their hearts, we have to probe deeper. These men not only misunderstood the identity and the mission of King Jesus, they misunderstood themselves. They misunderstood their own identities as a disciple of Jesus. So we can ask, why were the disciples so calloused and insensitive to the crowds? And why did they rebuke the children on this occasion? The answer is the disciples thought they were different than the crowds. The disciples fell into this dangerous temptation. They had watched Jesus minister to the needy time and time again. They watched him heal the sick and feed the crowds and even raise the dead. But they soon grew callous to the fact that they had the same need as the sick and the dying and the hungry and the dead. They needed Jesus' redemptive ministry just the same. Even more these men heard Jesus proclaim the gospel throughout Galilee. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And they heard Jesus explain the gospel with with clarity. The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they could not come to grips with the fact that Jesus was going to the cross. That he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, that he was going to be raised from the dead so that they might be ransomed from their sins. That the outstanding guilt upon their heads would finally be put away. That they would be washed clean from all of their defilement. What we see is that the disciples lived in a stunning incomprehension of their own neediness of Jesus. They radically misjudged their own helpless state before Jesus. They could push away the crowds. They could rebuke the children harshly because they had grown numb to the desperation that was pulsing through the crowd's veins. They could operate with insensitivity because their hearts had grown so cool in faith. And what is so sad is this is not an isolated incident in the New Testament. What we find happening in Mark 10 is powerfully illustrated in John chapter 13. And here we find precious insight for our own souls. So in John chapter 13, Jesus is preparing for his imminent death, and he has one last meal with his disciples. And in John chapter 13, Jesus shows stunning humility and service to his disciples. He he strips himself of his outer garments. He takes the form of a servant. He takes a towel and a wash basin, and he begins washing his disciples' stinky and dirty feet. And through this humble action in John chapter 13, Jesus reveals the very mission of the Christ. He has come to serve his people and wash them clean, not just their feet, but their very hearts from sin. But this action also revealed something about his disciples, and it's this that these men stood in need of Jesus' radical service. They need to be cleaned fundamentally. But as the Lord Jesus made his way around the room, washing feet, making his mission so clear and the need of the disciples so clear, he found resistance from one particular disciple. Peter spoke up here, looking at Jesus, and said, You shall never wash my feet. What a shocking statement. Though the truth of the gospel was right before him in tangible detail, Christ is proclaiming through his deed, I have come to wash your feet and you need this. Peter could not see how badly he needed it. And he couldn't understand how badly he needed it until Jesus turned to him and spoke to him saying, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Peter said, with faith starting to work in his heart, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. As we think about our passage this morning, we are presented with a strong warning. Consider the disciples. They had advanced much with the Lord Jesus Christ. They had heard much of Jesus. They spoke much for Jesus. They had done much for Jesus. But in all of this busy activity, they fell prey to a deadly temptation. These men grew dull in faith. Dependence gave way to independence. Desperation gave way to disinterest and dullness. So our text asks this morning, Where does your heart lie? Have you grown cold and calloused and dull? Have you become desensitized to your own need of the Lord Jesus? Can you no longer relate to the needy soul? Do you find Peter's words rising up in your own heart? You shall never wash my feet. Or is the Lord doing a work of grace in your heart? So that you can say with the old hymn writer, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. Or Psalm 70 working in your soul, and you can say with the psalmist, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my helper. You are my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. The text demands that we come to an answer. Are we with Peter? You shall never wash my feet. Are we with the psalmist? I am poor and needy. Come to me, O God, and rescue me. So clearly the disciples are in a dangerous place. So dangerous. They are blind, but they think they can see. They are deaf, but they think they can hear. They've been deceived concerning their true spiritual state. And so the question is, what can be done for these men? And as the Word does its work on our hearts this morning, we have to ask, well, what can be done for our hearts today? And here we must give our attention to Jesus and what Jesus is going to do. He is committed to leading blind and deaf men and women into salvation. And He calls His men and He calls us this morning to renewed faith. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Rightly, and we can say rightly, Jesus becomes angry and irritated with his men. This time they were not just hindering the work of an exorcist, casting out demons out there, but now they're hindering the the crowds of children to come to Jesus. They're committing a a grievous sin. They're causing the little ones to stumble. Jesus makes clear in his rebuke that the children are not a hindrance to his mission or his kingdom. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. But the question is, why? Why? Why does Jesus find it necessary to minister to these little children? Now, we have to understand that Jesus' interest in the children is not humanitarian in the broadest sense. While Jesus is not opposed to educational reform or good nutrition, we don't find him in this text campaigning for these matters. He doesn't say, let the children come so that I may feed them. Let the children come that I might clothe them. Rather, he says this, let the children come to me. Why? For to such like these belongs the kingdom of God. What Jesus is doing here is he's calling together his disciples and he's reorienting their vision of the kingdom. It's as if he is saying to them Look here, look, you dull men, do you see these children? What do you make of them? They are weak. They cannot defend themselves or stick up for themselves or fight for themselves. They're they're helpless. They need to be fed by others and clothed by others and sheltered by others. They're powerless. They do not hold public opinion. They do not have riches or abound in wisdom. No one seeks out their advice. Do you see these children? Do you understand what they're all about? You need to understand it because this is the very basic DNA of my people. This is what a kingdom citizen looks like and acts like. The point is clear. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor, the weak, the insignificant, and the disenfranchised. And it's for this reason that wherever you find Jesus speaking, you find him reaching out and extending favor to the helpless. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus preach there? Blessed are the rich, no, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the tenor of Jesus' whole ministry. But Jesus is not aiming to make an academic point with his disciples. He is working. He is preaching. He is speaking so that this principle would land upon their hearts and that they might be changed. He wants to apply the theology of the kingdom in a striking fashion. And he does this in verse 15. He ups the ante. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God shall never, like a child, shall not enter it. And not only do we see that the disciples were wrong for turning away the children and rebuking them, but they were wrong on account that they did not act like the children. The disciples, Jesus preaches, must shed their notions of completeness and health. They must set aside their vision of power and prestige and importance. They must crucify all of these hopes, all of these vain ambitions, and come to Jesus in simple need like a child. What Jesus wants his disciples to see and what he wants us to see is that in regards to the kingdom of God and the glorious age that is coming, we stand like helpless children. And Jesus is pleading with you this morning. He says, don't you see it? It is only by my grace that you shall enter the kingdom of God. It is only on account of my mercy that your sins will be washed away. It is only due to my power that you will rise on that great day of the resurrection. It is only by my grace that you shall stand complete and righteous in that great day of judgment. Can't you see it? You cannot provide one thing for yourself when it comes to the kingdom of God. It must be given to you, and you must take the posture of the child, and you must receive it. Jesus is changing our view of discipleship. The Lord Jesus is not calling for a rugged individualism where we find our inner strength, where we find our inner resolve and overcome all the obstacles in life that faith us. Jesus is not calling us to become like a a sort of moral gladiator where only the fittest and the finest and the fiercest will enter into the kingdom of God. Rather, discipleship is a path where we discover our own personal poverty yet again and again and again. Growing in grace is growing in the knowledge of our poverty, where we discover how many needs we actually have. It's for this reason when you cast your eye about the New Testament You're going to find this posture absolutely everywhere in those who are maturing in Christ. Paul leads us in this humility. He says, after experiencing the thorn in his flesh, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. James, the half-brother of Jesus, gets this point as well, and he encourages his people, saying, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that the, the path of discipleship that Jesus is calling us to is a humbling path. It is a humble path. It is a path that we travel on, where we acknowledge our needs again and again and again, where we come to Jesus with open hands yet again and again and again, because we know our bankruptcy. Even more, Jesus wants us to understand that this is the only path that leads to the kingdom of God. The only way to get in the kingdom of God is by acknowledging your bankruptcy and your need and living that way. Jesus says to us, for truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child, he shall not enter it. We can bring the story around full circle now. Verse 16. And Jesus took the children in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. What a beautiful conclusion to this story. The very children that the disciples rejected and pushed away. And Jesus now takes up in his arms and he he grasps them tightly. The very children that the disciples deemed unimportant and a hindrance to Jesus' ministry. Jesus now takes the time and he blesses them. What Mark is doing this morning, we have to understand this, is he is giving us a gospel consolation. Before us is a Savior who is not timid to identify with the weak, and the lame before us is a savior who's not ashamed to grab hold of us in our, our helplessness and, and bless us. Before us is a savior who does not reserve himself from those who come to him in need. And we can ask ourselves this morning, It's a dangerous place to acknowledge your bankruptcy, in your weakness, in your failures. What will happen to me if I go to that place and I come to Jesus? in this state of helplessness like he desires. But we must study the character of Jesus. The voice of Jesus assures us this morning, if we come to him in need, we will find what we need. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We can ask, well, what will happen to me if I come to Jesus in my helpless state again and again and again? I've been a Christian for 20 years. Will Jesus get sick of me? The voice of Jesus encourages us. He speaks in the book of Revelation saying, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We can ask ourselves, what will happen to us? What will happen to you if you come to Jesus in need? the voice of jesus promises he says come to me all who labor are heavy laden and what i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me why because i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light so brothers and sisters if we are to travel this road of discipleship if we are to take this path of of humility and bankruptcy We must line our hearts with the character of Jesus that we mine out from this text. We must lay what we find here into our hearts so that we might continue on this path with good courage because of Jesus. What precious words we have. And Jesus took the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. That is our Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, hear the call of the gospel. Jesus comes to you and he says, Repent and believe in the gospel. And I call upon you this morning use your intellect in faith. Know the facts of Christ Jesus. Know who he is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Know his suffering. Know his mighty deeds. Know his death. Know his resurrection. Know his session right now at the right hand of God. Know of his coming kingdom. Even more, I urge you, make the good confession yet again. Bow your knee, for this Jesus is truly king over all. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father because it is true and all will bend a knee someday. But do not let your faith stop there. May it rise to a higher and sweeter and more glorious level. may you entrust yourself to this Jesus. May you give yourself to him. Won't you say with all the characters in Mark's gospel, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Won't you say with the Syrophoenician woman, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's scraps. Won't you say with that beleaguered father, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in your good word. We need it. We need to be humbled. And we need to see your son's glory. We pray, give us faith now. Work faith in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel. Do not let us be dull and insensitive. Do not let us walk away thinking about other things. But fill our minds with the glory of Christ. Oh, Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.